Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Nonprofit Utopia Podcast, formerly known as Nonprofit U. Our podcast is an extension of our community, and we provide a forum where nonprofit stakeholders can share lessons learned and discuss the latest developments in the industry. My name is Valerie Leonard. I'm the founder of Nonprofit Utopia, the ideal community for emerging nonprofit leaders. I work with nonprofit organizations to help them make a stronger impact to their clients and communities. You can find out more about us on nonprofitutopia.com, Facebook, and Twitter. I encourage you to follow us and to comment early and often using the hashtags nonprofitutopia, big impact, and H2 growth strategies. You can also leave comments on blogtalkradio.com forward slash nonprofitutopia. Room is open and you can post comments and questions. In order to use the chat room, you must open a listener-only account. You'll find a link to open the account on the page for this episode right underneath the chat box. You can also email me questions at ValerieFLeonard at nonprofitutopia.com, and we'll be taking questions by phone and from our chat room at about the 30-minute mark or so. The call-in number is 347-884-8121. Today's topic is Big Impact, Insights and Stories. Vivian Hoekster and Linda C. Hartley, Principles of H2 Growth Strategies, LLC, will discuss their new book, Big Impact, Insights and Stories from America's Nonprofit Leaders. The book highlights nonprofit leaders from the United States and abroad who have found solutions to some of the world's most vexing societal problems. Hoekster and Hartley will also share their insights on how these change makers are implementing solutions in their communities the qualities of these leaders and lessons learned that may be useful in helping you as you develop your nonprofit organizations. Again, we encourage you to call in with questions at about the 30-minute mark. You can start posting in the chat room and emailing questions now. Again, my email address is Leonard at nonprofitutopia.com. Participate in a live chat. You must open an account, and the link is found on the episode page. Thank you so much for being with us today, ladies. Vivian, can you hear me? I can. Oh, okay, great. Great. I wasn't quite sure. I know we had some technical difficulty earlier. So I want to thank you, ladies, so much for being on our show. And Vivian, I was just looking at your background. You have a very, very interesting history, so to speak, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I guess when we get a certain age, we start associating ourselves with history. That's not such a good thing. And I didn't mean for for it to come out that way. But you are a woman with a past, a very interesting past, I noticed that that you were an assistant buyer for Lord & Taylor. Can you share uh, share with us a little bit about your background? So so thank you so much, uh, Valerie, for for having me and Linda on today. It's funny because I often introduce myself by saying that I have a checkered past. So you beat me to it. (laughs) I have a checkered past. And I, I come from a family where a family of retailers, so it was sort of a normal and natural thing for me to think I wanted to be in retail. But guess what? I confused a love of fashion with a love of retail. 
And so I didn't last too long uh, in retail. And then I I didn't know what I wanted to do, but uh, I went to business school because that seemed like a good fit for my personality and skill sets. And uh, and then I worked for a while in the corporate world in marketing. And mm-hmm. I discovered pretty early that I am very mission-driven, so I have to care a lot about the product or service that I'm selling or marketing. And at that time, uh, most of the missions that I cared about were mostly uh, worked on through nonprofit organizations. So I came into the nonprofit sector pretty early in my career. And uh, I held then, over a period of about 20 years, I held leadership roles inside four different nonprofits with wildly different missions. I worked for the Hunger Project, which works on wow. an international development organization. I worked for AFS Intercultural Programs for eight years. That's a, an international high school exchange organization. Uh, and then I was CEO of Gilda's Club Worldwide, the cancer support organization. I think you're in Chicago. There's a very um, active Gilda's Club in Chicago. Um, and yeah, I just saw an ad for something that they're doing. I think they're hosting a, a big fundraiser or something. You know, yes, yes. Or nice, a flipped. Well, always yeah. one of our best uh, best clubs, the the Gilda's Club in Chicago, uh, and uh, and then I I worked um, briefly uh, for John Jay College of Criminal Justice, which is part of the City University of New York, also a very interesting place, mm-hmm. and then I started my own firm in 2011. Uh, because I really um, like to do strategic planning, and mm-hmm. uh, what I and once when you work inside an organization, you don't really get to do strategic planning all that often. So, and I wanted to do it more often. So I started my own company, and then um, and then I see you're going to ask me about that in a moment. So I'll let uh, I'll let we'll move on, um, and I will mm-hmm. tell you more about that in a few minutes. Okay, great, great. And I, I thank you so much. You know, I was looking at your resume and I was just so intrigued. Okay, <laughs> Linda, <laughs> it is your turn. I, I see that you've got significant experience in fundraising and governance and much of what you've had to execute in the past and I guess currently has been done within the backdrop of change. Can you share a little background about yourself as well and some of your experiences? Was my school career? Uh, can you hear me? Yes, I now can we hear can. You. Oh. Okay. Uh, uh, joined an off-off Broadway theater company uh, when I was uh, going to graduate school at NYU and uh, in acting. Uh, learned about fundraising. Ended up with a job at NYU. They paid for my MBA at night. Uh, that mm-hmm. took five years, and then worked in uh, mostly educational and cultural institutions for the next 20 years uh, in development, uh, NYU, New School, Bard College, Columbia University. Uh, my uh, uh, last staff job was vice president for external affairs at the Cooper Union for the Advancement of Science and Art. Uh, started my own company, um, Vivian. Uh, hired me, 
hired Hartley Consulting uh, when she was CEO of Gilda's Club Worldwide. Uh, we worked together. We became friends. Uh, we started to work together again uh, when Vivian became a consultant. And then we joined forces uh, to create H2 Growth Strategies a couple of years ago now. And uh, throughout that process, uh, we've partnered with about 100 nonprofits to raise $1.5 billion so far, mostly in education, um, advocacy, uh, cultural organizations, some health organizations, and social services. Oh, that is that is awesome. So can you tell us a little bit about H2 Strategies? and That's actually H2 Growth Strategies, and that's a question for Vivian. Hello. 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 This is this is Linda. I wonder what happened to Vivian. Hmm. Sorry, sorry. Here oh. I am. Oh. oh, there you are. Okay. Uh, here I am. Uh, so, the um, we are a full service uh, consulting firm to the nonprofit and foundation sector. We specialize in strategy, as in strategic planning. Uh, mm-hmm. fundraising um, in all different kinds of fundraising uh, and board building. And let me go back and talk a little bit more about the fundraising because um, there's so many different aspects to it that we consult in. Uh, we, do, we, we conduct development assessments. We create development plans. We do assessments for capital campaigns we run capital campaigns, uh, we, and we also consult on um, specific aspects of development programs. So our, one of our most recent uh, projects has, it was with a large cultural institution in New York, uh, and we, we um, assessed their major gift program post-campaign uh, because they mm-hmm. recognized that th- what had gotten them to a successful completion to that campaign, the people, those people were probably not going to be the ones to take them through their next campaign. So, um, so we do that. We do all kinds of work around fundraising, and we also do a fair amount of work around governance and um, and board building, whether that's looking at the composition of an organization's board and helping them figure out uh, what they would like their board to be in the future, and then um, helping them identify board prospects, uh, doing research on those prospects, and uh, often helping to strategize with the leadership of the organization about how to recruit and then retain those board members. So that's a little oh, bit of awesome. a little bit about what we do. Mhm. Okay, Linda, did you have anything to add uh, about about what we do? Uh, there, the mm-hmm. um, the uh, well, we've we've run four capital campaigns at once, totaling a hundred million dollars. Uh, mm-hmm. We've found that. Uh, working with a nonprofit in there and and strengthening their board. Through uh, looking at what what their uh, board composition is now, and then uh, strengthening the gaps 
you know, really doing some outside research, not only just looking at their connections, but also looking at uh, what types of board members would ideally uh, help the organization the most uh, in terms of influence and affluence, in terms of serving as bridges to other constituencies in the social, civic, and business worlds. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, we, we've we've found that, you know, that really fundraising is all about leadership. <laughs> and so the strongest when when you can when you can when you strengthen your board, uh, it makes fundraising easier and faster. It makes it makes it uh, you, you more effective at uh, advancing the nonprofit's mission. Oh, I I love that. I love that. Thank you so much. Okay, I want to remind our listening audience that you're listening to the Nonprofit Utopia podcast, and we're speaking with Vivian Huckster and Linda Hartley. Please forgive me, ladies. They're principals with H2 Growth Strategies, and we'll be taking questions from our listening audience in the chat room at about the 30-minute mark. The call-in number is 347-884-8121. Again, that number is 347-884-8121. So, Linda, obviously you and Vivian have significant experience in fundraising and executive institutional and nonprofit management. What are some of the recurring themes in your careers that have led you to write big impact insights and stories from America's nonprofit leaders? We, we, we've worked with so many uh, incredible leaders over our lifetimes and uh, I find it especially satisfying in my life when I can w- leverage that kind of philanthropy and power uh, to uh, make the world a better place, uh, to contribute mm-hmm. to something larger than myself. Uh, so, um, and, you know, our sense was that there, there were a lot of, uh, there was a lot of good news about the about what was happening in the nonprofit sector that never gets mm-hmm. uh, mentioned, uh, reported on, highlighted, showcased, um, and that's not unusual. You know, the, uh, most most good news is not reported, right, in any way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> this is uh, true, especially if you live uh, in Chicago. <laughs> Uh, you know, even though um, you know, in in anywhere you look, the nonprofit sector, you can see the effects of the nonprofit sectors, whether it's in institutions or or in social services. Uh, anywhere, you know, anywhere you look, in any town or city. Uh, so there there's a major impact that the nonprofit sector affects. Uh, and uh, when we began interviewing the uh, the leaders, uh, we we began to really appreciate that they they were solving problems and implementing solutions uh, in a in a, in a very major way, and mm-hmm. n- not that many you know not the larger community didn't hear about it. So we wanted to amplify the voices uh, of these leaders in the nonprofit sector by writing this book. Okay, great. So, Vivian, did you have anything to add before we get to your questions? Um, sure. Just just one thing, which is that, and this sort of builds on what Linda was saying, uh, what we observed is that when you go on Amazon or 
Barnes and Noble, right, and you look for books mm-hmm. on leadership, you find hundreds of books about corporate leadership, literally hundreds. And there mm-hmm. are virtually no books about nonprofit leadership. Uh, and so we really saw that as a gap or a void uh, and wanted to help to fill it because we know that there's a tremendous need for good nonprofit leadership and uh, we wanted to sort of contribute to that and the endeavor of, of helping to educate nonprofit leaders about what's the same about nonprofit mm-hmm. leadership and what's different. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's a great segue into the next question. And, you know, your book is based on your combined experiences and observations and interviews with nearly 50 leaders. And those Mm -hmm. 50 leaders are making a difference in their communities all around the United States and even in some cases internationally. So, Mm -hmm. I don't know, I would imagine that over time you see some patterns that start to emerge. So what would you say would be the five contributing, the top five contributing factors to their success? So that's, uh, that's a great question. Uh, and I would say that maybe number one, or numbers one and two, um, emotional intelligence would be number mm-hmm. one, uh, commitment to the mission would be number two. Uh, Number three, I would call sort of an entrepreneurial spirit, not something that we always think about when we think about nonprofit leaders, but our observation is that the best nonprofit leaders are highly entrepreneurial. And that that mentorship, in other words, having mentors and then being a mentor, uh, also very, very important. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, I guess I would, and maybe this goes along with the entrepreneurial spirit, would be being very, very clear about the focus of a particular activity or plan, um, but also being somewhat flexible in um, and, and opportunistic uh, when it comes to um, how that mission is going to be carried out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are, and, and I would go back to the emotional intelligence because that really, um, you know, a number of things, of course, jumped out at us, um, mm-hmm. but the one that really kind of shone perhaps brighter than the others was this, was the idea of emotional intelligence. And so, and, and emotional intelligence takes lots of different forms, right? Being able to admit that you're wrong, uh, constantly learning, uh, taking um, taking one's life experiences, even if they're tragic, and turning them into opportunities or fuel uh, for for further achievement. Uh, and and we we observed that our leaders had these qualities in uh, in abundance. Um, the commitment to mission is perhaps more obvious, right? You know, to, to do the right. kind of work these leaders do and and not get paid the way their corporate counterparts get paid um, means that they're incredibly committed to the mission. Uh, 
And um, and I said a little bit about the entrepreneurial spirit. You know, I think that, again, there's sort of a misconception, perhaps, about um, about nonprofits, at least traditionally, that they are not so creative, um, but that's not been our observation at all. The successful ones are highly mm-hmm. creative. Okay. Now it's interesting. You mentioned um, that some of the top ones are – entrepreneurial. Are those um, organizations also engaged in some sort of business enterprise, social enterprise beyond the traditional nonprofit model, or you're just talking about the approach itself? Um, well, I, I was talking about the approach, but I also, mm-hmm. we, you know, for example, we interviewed Hillary Pennington, who's now the, like the COO at the Ford Foundation, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Ford is among uh, now a number of foundations who have taken a piece of their endowment uh, and said that they, that, and I think in the case of uh, Ford, it's a billion dollars initially, um, that that money has to be invested in, um, they call them mission-related investments, um, but we mm-hmm. might call them social impact investments. Uh, and I think Ford was about the first of the major foundations to do this. Um, so, mm-hmm. and to us, that was a highly creative entrepreneurial idea, growing out of this idea that these large foundations have huge endowments. They're not required to spend them, right? They only have to spend five mm-hmm. percent every year. Um, and so, the idea that you could put the endowment to work. Uh, in the service of the um, foundation's mission was is a really cool idea, right? Um, and Ford mm-hmm. is actually doing it now, um, actually doing it. So, so that's that's kind of a I don't know that, that exactly answers your question, but it, that's sort of a cross between. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, and I, and I want to add too. We we uh, interviewed uh, Bob Forrester or Robert Forrester, the president and CEO of Newman's Own. Uh, that's a perfect example mm. of what uh, uh, the, the co- combination of corporate and and uh, nonprofit uh, Newman's Own products, uh, mm-hmm. all uh, and uh, and its foundation uh, combined. Um, you know they're gonna they they've been giving away they've given away more than 530 million dollars to thousands of nonprofits, wow. or, uh, helping people in need around the world. Oh, that is excellent. Uh, I was just—I I was just in the supermarket the other day and was delighted to see <laughs> that they're now in a new line of business: uh, organic um, uh, tea. <laughs> they're doing a whole line oh. of organics now. In you know, in addition to some of their other things, mm-hmm. other products uh, in the supermarkets. <laughs> right. Okay, great. Thank you. I, I love tea. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah, you want to look for it. It's good. <laughs> yeah. My my question is about what percentage of their revenues do they use, you know, to go into charity? Oh, all profits. All profits. All okay, profits. All profits. In that one, okay. yeah. Yep. Yeah. Oh, very unusual excellent. model, right? There are, there aren't too many. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there I don't know of any <laughs> other major yeah. organization that's doing that. Yeah, uh, in this mm-hmm. way, Paul Newman uh, first declared, "Let's give it all away" in 1982. So it's been a long time. Wow. 
<laughs> that that is awesome. So, Linda, I'd imagine that a number of these leaders also had obstacles to overcome, just like every one of us. Uh, what are some of the apparent barriers to success that these leaders had to overcome? If you have to notice a pattern. Well, I wouldn't call it a, a, a barrier, and I'm going to go back to the emotional intelligence because that came up a lot uh, throughout our interviews, um, and and how uh, tragedy often uh, formed who they are and and uh, how they contribute back to society. And I want to give you an example of. Um, one of my former bosses and someone we interviewed was uh, Leon Botstein, uh, the president of Bard College in New York. Um, he's been president of Bard College since, I think, his early 30s. He's been there, I think, uh, I don't know, about 30, 40 years now. Uh, and wow. he, the, the, a lot of everyone that knows him knows his story, but I'm going to give you uh, his quote and the story he told us about what was the worst and best thing that ever happened to him in his life and what did you learn from it. He said, by far the worst thing that ever happened to me was that I had a daughter who was killed at the age of eight. Uh, we happened to Ooh. know that it was on the campus when he first started working at Bard, oh uh, run over by, you know, a, you know, a car. Uh, that, that puts all other disappointments and failures in relief. What I learned from that is that one needs to find a way to rescue victory from the jaws of defeat, so to speak, mm-hmm. rather than turning mm-hmm. disappointment and tragedy into an excuse for feeling like a powerless victim. I try to recognize the unintended gift that comes from mm-hmm. tragedy and failure, the unintended gift. It's like a prize fight. The key is having the <laughs> ability to get up again after getting knocked down. The other important thing I learned is that you have to be fully aware of the tenuousness of any plan or any notion mm-hmm. that you can control. You can't control what happens, <laughs> and you're constantly at the mercy of the unexpected. Oh, I love this. Is that, I mean, I it's, I, I like to read it just to remind myself of uh, mm-hmm. what's important. This sounds like a very juicy book. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> it is. The, yeah. in, the interviews are just fascinating yeah. to read. <laughs> I still yeah. like reading them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, after listening to you ladies talk, I'm like, wow, I, I got to get this book. I got to get this book. <laughs> and where can we get the book? So um, you can get the book um, by going on the uh, going on Amazon mm-hmm. or and typing in Big Impact, Insights and Stories, um, or you can go to our website, uh, h2growth.com. Okay. So either either way. Okay. I know. I will be – I'm going to go onto your website after, after the podcast. This is exciting stuff. Very exciting. Thank you. And I really, really mm-hmm. – I appreciate you ladies taking the time out of your busy schedule to do this. Sure. Okay, and at this point, I want to remind our listening audience that you're listening to the Nonprofit Utopia podcast, and we're speaking with Vivian Hulkster and Linda Hartley. They're principals with H2 Growth Strategies, 
and we'll be taking questions from our listening audience right now. So if you're in the chat room and you have questions or comments, please post, even if your comment is none other than, yes, I'm going to go buy this book right about now. <laughs> we, we love, we absolutely love to hear from you, and, and that's totally unsolicited. You know, I can just listen to you ladies talk and, and know that this book is, you know, well worth your while. Um, I do see a caller. I'm going to um, call on you, caller. Your number is 773-624-0585. If you have any questions, if you have any comments, if you're going to buy the book, um, please let us know. Okay. I don't see if the mic is live yet. Okay. Your mic is live now. Caller, do you have any comments or questions? Okay, I don't I don't think we have any comments or questions from this caller. I'm going to check the chat room. Um I see JP Paulus is in the chat room. JP, do you have any comments? If you have any questions, please uh, post for us, and while you're posting questions, we will continue with our interview. Again, I want to remind you that we're speaking with Vivian Hulkster and Linda Hartley, Principles with H2 Growth Strategies, and they're talking about their book, Big Impact, and that's just your abbreviated version of the book's name. So, Vivian, I know you don't have a favorite case study from your book, and if you do have a favorite you better not you better not let on who your favorite is. But uh, <laughs> if you could if you could share a little bit about one of the leaders profiled in your book and some of the lessons learned from his or her experience. Hello. One of, one of the ones, yeah, I'm here. One one of the ones that is very mm-hmm. instructive uh, um, is from is by is Evan Wolfson, the founder of Freedom to Marry. So, if you read that chapter, you get a kind of a uh, strategy 101 for making social change. Because so Evan. Uh, worked on uh, gay marriage for 32 years from the time mm-hmm. he was in law school and wrote his law school thesis on it until 2015 um, when uh, when the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that it was constitutional. And mm-hmm. he first he, w- he worked from inside Lambda Legal and then eventually he founded uh, Freedom to Marry and one of the things that I've found so instructive about his experience is that he it's almost like he was a general with a with in, in, in a in a war and I hate to use that analogy, but it really is how it occurred. It you know, he thought about he he says things like you can't always win, but you have to lose forward. Meaning oh, that, and, and that, and that you have to um, campaign on many fronts, right? So it's not 
it's not just advocacy, it's not just litigation, um, it's not just public relations, it's all of those plus. And mm-hmm. he says that what he means by losing forward is, so for example, they in, toward the end they had campaigns going on in pretty much every region of the country uh, and then they also had campaigns by ethnicity. So they had a different mm-hmm. campaign for Latinos and a different campaign for African Americans. And the losing forward comes from, for example, the South. So he was, Evan was pretty clear that they weren't going to win gay marriage by appealing only to the South or first to the South, but they engaged mm-hmm. in the South anyway. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I, I just found his whole approach, uh, you know, oh, and also that it's a marathon, right, 32 years, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and, and that you really have to be prepared for, you know, for any kind of major social change, you have to be prepared mm-hmm. for a long war. <laughs> Again, to continue <laughs> that analogy. Uh, yeah. And I, I so it. I just found... I found it extremely um, instructive and inspiring. Um, in fact, Evan is the only one of the leaders that we spoke with who has actually disbanded his organization um, because mm-hmm. they won, they completed their mission. Uh, oh, I love it. So, um, so it just, just really um, an amazing guy and just brilliant, right? And, you know, as a strategic planner, I find that brilliance very uh, attractive and interesting. Oh, that that is awesome. And I, I think it's very interesting, too, that rather than try to reinvent the organization, change its mission or whatever, they just said, you know what, our, our work is done. You know, why mm-hmm. why beat a dead mm-hmm. horse? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is so unusual. It is. It is unusual. It is unusual. So, um, so anyway, that's my not my favorite, but one that I think is particularly uh, instructive. And they're probably all your favorite. I have a sense that each one of those stories is going to have mm-hmm. its own nugget that that we can take away. And and quite frankly, I'm learning a heck of a lot just listening, you know, to you ladies talk about your experiences and and what your clients and colleagues have told you. Uh, we've got J.P. Paulus. He's in the chat room. And mm-hmm. his question is, what is a way for nonprofits to better engage potential or past funders and supporters to get inspired with the organization's mission, and especially when they're far away? It seems like support, whether financial or relational, is hugely important for leaders to continue. So, Linda, do you want oh, that, to take that, that one? Could you uh, could you re, re, repeat it? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a long question, so could you repeat part of it okay. again? Yes, ma'am. Okay, so he says, what is a way for nonprofits to better engage potential or past funders or supporters? You know, make sure that they're inspired with the organization's mission, you know, especially when they're far away. So I, I got a sense from reading this question is, you know, how do you um, make the heart fonder, so to speak, when you're 
potential donors are, are not right there with you, but, you know, you want to keep them engaged, you know, and I would imagine that this is harder to do, you know, across states or even across countries than it is when your local donors are, you know, in the same city, same state mm-hmm. as you. Mm-hmm. Well, what, you know, we, we, uh, We've integrated into our uh, practice uh, the uh, the theory and and methodology called appreciative inquiry, and one of mm-hmm. it, it's um, it was developed by um, David Cooper Ryder at Case Western Reserve uh, about 20 years ago, and both nonprofits and for profits use it in planning and development. And one of uh, uh, the, one of its major principles is that people help what they help people support what they help to create. Um, mm. So, of course, you've got supporters, uh, and they're far away, so you're not going to get them on site very often. I don't know what the organization does, if there's a place that it's being done at, or if it's more of a virtual or cause-related effort. Uh, but engage, engaging them uh, is everyone's biggest challenge. Uh, and, mm-hmm. one, you know, engaging them in in uh, something that they can contribute to, not only in financially, but also with their uh, with their advice, uh, is mm-hmm. is one way to help um, uh, connect them more strongly to your organization. Uh, if there's a, an exciting initiative that you could get them involved in, as a on a planning committee or an advisory committee, and you actually and then take them seriously. It's not just that they're mm-hmm. on a, a list somewhere or on your letterhead. Uh, that you know that that they have something that very specifically that they're going to do that only they perhaps can help you with. Of course, the organization makes it very easy for them to do that one thing that they can do. But if it's, for instance, giving advice uh, on a certain uh, topic or initiative, uh, maybe maybe they get together on the phone a couple times a year. That's one way to 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 uh, uh, get them closer. Uh, keeping in mind mm-hmm. that people support what they help to create. So uh, when you get them in on the early planning stages of something, ask them for their advice. Uh, there's a saying, mm-hmm. uh, when you want money, ask for advice. Ah, I love it. <laughs> that, that, so that's, 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 that's one thing that we, we think about doing, you know, trying to get them excited about some new initiative uh, that the organization is involved in uh, and getting them in early, early on in the planning stages with the idea that they will, you know, more likely support it uh, because they were mm-hmm. – in on it early. That's interesting. Now, do you find that engagement strategies vary by generation? You know, for example, I am on the tail end of the baby boom. Mm-hmm. You know, generation Xers seem to be a little bit different from us, and millennials are different from all of us. But yet, the millennials, you know, at this point, they've um, they're pretty much the largest sector now, right? And philanthropy mm-hmm. as well yes. as the workforce. Yes. Do you engage them any differently, or do you just think that people are people regardless of our generations? Do you want me to take it, Vivian, or do you want to? I'm I'm happy to. Okay, I'm happy to take it. <laughs> so, um, 
I, the answer is yes and no. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, uh, in, in the sense that it's it's all, at least in in fundraising, and, and particularly in major gift fundraising, right? It's all about relationship, uh, and it's mm-hmm. even it's even about relationship in when people give smaller contributions. But so I think the the goal, which is to develop a strong relationship, is the same. The entry point might be different. So a millennial might find out about your organization on social media, whereas mm-hmm. um, someone in in our generation might find out about it from a friend or uh, an email. Uh, or um, someone in the community, right, sort of direct kind of um, uh, word of mouth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in, in that, but in that, but, but or and, the, the end goal is the same, which is to develop a relationship with the prospect and have them become a donor and then have and continue to steward them so that they remain a donor and over time increase their investment in the organization uh and but and it is it is just different you know a a um a millennial might find out about about your organization through a kickstarter campaign or some other mm-hmm. similar campaign right i i uh know for a fact you know we have a nephew who loves kickstarter he just loves it <laughs> um <laughs> and uh uh and so it it uh, but again so i but i think the 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 goal is the same right it's just the mm-hmm. oh oh and we do find though that even that that the um when it comes to the sort of maintaining the relationship younger people are more comfortable having the relationship be man, maintained virtually rather than in person mm-hmm. uh so um, that is something that we have found of late that that they're more comfortable having people call them or email them and not always invite them to lunch or uh you know out for a drink or uh so so in that sense i think I think that's all that mm-hmm. is a generational difference oh okay, awesome, awesome. And we got more comments from J.P. Paulus. You know, first of all, he wants to say thank you so much for answering his question. And he found that especially helpful was, you know, the notion of engaging donors at the planning slash ask for advice level. Um, Then he says, one other question. How do you see leaders in a healthy way pass on leadership for those who have missions that don't end? How do you see, say that again, how do you see leaders? Um, Yeah, in a healthy way, pass on leadership. And in parentheses, he has for those who have missions that don't end. I guess he was referring, making reference to the example where, you know, one of your clients actually, he folded the organization not because it was failing, but because they actually completed what they started out. But ideally, most organizations are running in perfect perpetuity. So I guess when leaders get to a point where they have either they have to retire, they move on somewhere, how do you make sure that you groom 
leader, mm-hmm. you know, to come mm-hmm. after them. I, I, I mm-hmm. think that's what J.P. Right. is saying. It's and J.P. is succession uh, planning. <laughs> don't it's uh, plan- it's right. planning for the inevitable. Uh, we talk yeah. about that in the book at, at length because uh, it was a theme that recurred in a number of our interviews. Uh, and uh, the the uh, these were these were all successful leaders, and uh, the majority of them um, uh, had uh, uh, succession planning as part of their DNA. Uh, Paula mm-hmm. Kerger at PBS said, "You know, have someone in mind, uh, tr- you know, groom them internally, even if you, even if they don't get the job in the end." <laughs> Uh, you need that kind of you need that kind of strength uh, on mm-hmm. your bench, uh, both on uh, in terms of uh, the the CEO president uh, uh, position and also on the board. Uh, there should be mm-hmm. uh, uh, people that uh, are are being that that are cap- that would be capable of becoming the chairman of the board or chairperson of the board when uh, th- there was a need. Um, and and thinking of it as planning for the inevitable is a is a good way I think to uh, frame mm-hmm. it. Uh, there's there's quite a few articles uh, about this online uh, that have been helpful uh, from um, the social the Stanford Social Innovation Review, oh, uh-huh. uh, and um, uh, it uh, one way to get at it because it's it's often uh, if it's a founder for instance. Uh, of the organization, it's that much harder because you know there's a joke that you know people, some founders, you know, will end up getting carried out. They're not going to leave right <laughs> <laughs> on their own until they 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 pass on to their next life. Uh, so um, uh, uh, another uh, way of getting at that can be through strategic planning, so that you mm-hmm. you know engaging the 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 people early on, you know, people support what they help to create, so that if that strategic planning process and you know, um, you know, is working with leadership as as well as staff and other constituencies, um, uh, that that's a way to uh, to get at uh, uh, planning for the future and planning for the inevitable. That it, it, it the you know, the, mm-hmm. it's a best practice really, and. Uh, as sensitive as it can be, uh, it's it's some it, one way that we've uh, that I've uh, done this with a founder at a major cultural organization is is uh, we convinced him that you know we wanted him to uh, advance his strategies to transfer his strategies to the next generation. And the only way that mm-hmm. that could happen is if he participated in it while he was alive, <laughs> you know, so that he would, so that he could have that satisfaction of knowing uh, that he's helped guide the organization even, you know, after his service or lifetime. Uh, and that that that's uh, a, a strategy that helped us uh, bring in new people onto the board that would you know, were specifically thought of as people that could help him uh, and and forward his legacy even even uh, after his lifetime or his service. I would love to have been a fly on the wall during some of those discussions. Yeah, it wasn't easy. 
I, I can imagine. I, I, you should you should see the visual that I have. I, I won't share it. <laughs> My visual is very well, you, very. And 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 uh-huh. we found the thing that was most important to him uh, about the organization okay. was taking care of kids, taking care of the kids. Mm. That was the most important thing. And so we kind of tried to tie that into the uh, the next new programs and the next group of people that we're going to help uh, on the board to do that. So that's the other thing. Okay. And the reason we're here is to talk about your book, and we have been talking about it. I, I just have not been highlighting the name. The name of the book is Big Impact, Insights and Stories from America's Nonprofit Leaders. And my question to you, Linda, is why would an emerging leader by this book? Uh, there, the, there's, a, there's a great diversity of, uh, of people we interviewed in the book. Uh, some of them mm-hmm. were older leaders and some of them were newer leaders. So that's uh, one reason, uh, because you can, mm-hmm. you can hear from some of your colleagues, uh, you know, uh, just uh, uh, coming out in recent years, uh, one is Aria Finger from DoSomething.org. And that's a great story, too, because uh, in terms of succession, because the founder of DoSomething.org, Nancy Lublin, um, took Aria out for some hot chocolate one day and said, you're going to be the next CEO. Wow. <laughs> I'm going to groom you to do that. <laughs> and she was very wow. young at the time. And that's what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, she helped, uh, Nancy helped Aria become the CEO. Uh, so uh, she's very grateful. Uh, the organization uh, works with young people around the world um, uh, and is really harnessing that, the, the, the energy of young people to, you know, to volunteer and make a difference in their, com- in their own communities. Uh, uh, by the, by the way, they, they also have a for-profit entity that gathers the information uh, uh, from what they're learning working with young people uh, to help other organizations also work with young people. Um, oh, that's so that's, that's, one, that's one example. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think and, uh, professionals at any part in of their career will learn from the people in the book um, and you they may well be able to avoid some of the mistakes that uh, some of uh, these leaders have made in the past uh, or uh, not reinvent the wheel you know uh, there's there's um, uh, good lessons to be learned uh, in terms of both strategy and also really in, in terms of mistakes that you know don't need to necessarily be made again uh, <laughs> for young for young uh, emerging leaders. Yes, uh, yes, yes. You know, um, uh, another principle that came out of this was uh, uh, make sure your own house is in order, uh, meaning mm. internally, not only what you're doing, you know, how you're doing uh, your your work serving the outside community, uh, but a big emphasis was uh, also, you know, making sure that the organization was well managed uh, because that builds confidence, of course, and support 
Uh, so quite, mm-hmm. there's quite a bit in the book about uh, how to uh, uh, work with young people, how to work with a, div- a diverse staff, how to encourage a diverse staff, and to you know bring more diversity onto your staff in addition to addressing um, um, uh, inequities externally. Oh, I love that. I love that. This is so time, timely for me. I really have to go and get this book as soon as we get off this call. <laughs> yeah. I'm listening to a lot of things that I could use immediately, and I'm a more seasoned professional, and I, I get a sense for what I might gain, but I'm, you know, this show is not about me and what I think, even though, unfortunately, I, I may have said what I have thought once or twice, but at any rate, what would the more seasoned professional gain from buying this book? So, um, so this is Vivian. Uh, uh, I think inspiration, mm-hmm. uh, and also the, the 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 more seasoned professionals whom we interviewed are very candid about when they have had blind spots in their recent mm-hmm. careers, particularly when it comes to issues of diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that there are are lessons there for more experienced leaders about how to watch for those blind spots. For example, um, Bob Giannino, who runs an organization called You Aspire, which is based in Boston but has chapters around the country, is a college affordability and persistence organization. So it it helps young people who don't have the means to go to college figure out how to get to college, and then it helps them persist in college, which we know is a huge challenge for um, for many uh, young people. And um, he 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 himself is from a, a working class family in Boston, the first in his family to go to college and certainly to go to the college that he went to. And he describes sort of waking up one day a couple of years ago and looking around and seeing that um, although there was pretty good diversity throughout the organization, that at the top in the C-suite um, there was not the kind of diversity that mm-hmm. he would have liked to see, even though he he came from a background where he, he was sensitive to those things. Uh, mm-hmm. And so he describes how he really had a kind of a wake-up, it was a wake-up call for him, and now they're really working on it and have made some good progress. But it's that sort of thing, I think, that is, um, just helpful to uh, to more senior managers who are thinking about having their own houses be in order, um, as mm-hmm. Linda said earlier. Uh, so that's so I think it's a, it's there's there's valuable learning for pretty much everyone who is associated mm-hmm. with a nonprofit. Okay, great. Thank you so much. And Vivian, what are some of the lessons that you've learned yourself as a result of writing this book? Well, the what I the uh uh the the what I just alluded to, in other words, the whole issue of diversity, equity and inclusion, 
um, definitely sort of raised my consciousness about that uh, and mm-hmm. taught me some things that I just that I just didn't know. Um, and you know, it's uh, uh, of course the those the DEI diversity, equity, inclu- inclusion sort of on everyone's lips now, or at least seems to mm-hmm. be, uh, but. Um, you know, it's still easy uh, to not really think about it unless unless it's sort of put in front of one, uh, and that's what happened for me as a result of uh, of conducting these interviews. Um, the The other thing, you know, I think of myself as someone who has pretty high emotional intelligence, but. Mm-hmm. Um, Doing conducting these interviews really uh, had me understand that um, building emotional intelligence is a lifelong uh, journey, a lifelong pursuit, and that it's always possible to do to be better at it, to have more of it. Uh, so I've sort of recommitted myself personally and professionally to um, you know continuing to build that that aspect of myself. So those are a couple of the things that I've really taken away from it, um, as well as just huge inspiration because the work that these uh, leaders is doing are doing um, is so inspiring. And for someone who um, has worked in this sector a long time, you know, it's good, it was really good for me to be sort of re-inspired uh, mm-hmm. By by talking to these amazing leaders, I can imagine. I can imagine. We have all of three minutes left, um, Linda. After conducting these interviews, what would you say? Well, are there some things that you would have done differently in your career, or was this you know a reality check for you to say, you know what, I I did everything right. Not everything. None of us do, but you, you know what I mean. Hmm. Uh, I I really uh, it affirmed uh, what mm-hmm. I what I, the choices I've made. Uh, I I've, um, I've really always been attracted to m- making a difference and uh, leveraging people uh, people's philanthropy and and power to uh, make a greater difference than I can myself. And bringing bringing mm-hmm. groups of people together to do that. Uh, Stephen Hines of the Rockefeller Brothers Fund uh, said that um, if you can either influence public policy uh, or private sector behavior, then you're really producing change. And uh, I, I was glad to hear that because it's it's been you know in my in my uh, uh, volunteer life I've. Uh, worked with women's organizations uh, for the, for many decades. Um, I'm on the board of Power New York. It's a coalition of 100 women's organizations working on economic equality for women uh, in in New York. Uh, we've helped pass uh, equal pay legislation here, uh, both in Albany and in uh, New York City. Uh, after oh. working on it for about 15 years. So the idea of persisting is a really important one, and that's also in the book. <laughs> so that was also affirming. Okay. <laughs> you have to you know, you have to keep at it. 
Uh, you know, I, I tell my friends that I'd like to uh, go move on from women's issues to saving the planet because that'll be easier. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, once oh, we get women's good. equality, you know, it's all over the news these days, you know, in yes. many forms. So uh, mm-hmm. there's still a lot of work for me to do. You should be proud. I think both of you should be really, really proud of what you've been able to accomplish, what you've been able to bring out of others and and share with, you know, share with us in the book. So, you know, we've come to the end of our show, and I'd like to thank you, ladies. We have Vivian Hoekster and Linda Hartley, their principals with H2 Growth Strategies, and they have just written a book that I am encouraging you to go out and buy the book is Big Impact, Insights and Stories from America's Nonprofit Leaders. You can go to the website, and they'll share with you the website you know, as they give closing remarks, or you can go to Amazon.com. But I'm, I'm encouraging people who listen to this show to go to the website so they can get a sense for whether or not you know this podcast has made an impact and and I'm not saying that there are 50 million people listening to us, but you know, I think they might be interested in knowing if um, this podcast may have had some impact on the number of people purchasing the book. So without further ado, I am going to open it up for closing remarks, and we'll hear from Vivian first and then from Linda. Great. Um, so thank you, really, Valerie, for a very thoughtful uh, series of questions, and, and uh, it was just a pleasure to be on the show. Uh, and I guess what I would say is that uh, we really um, had a wonderful time interviewing these leaders and writing this book. Mm-hmm. We didn't really know how impactful the interviews would be until we had done them and collected them all and sort of put them together. Uh, And, you know, we are thrilled to share the wisdom of these leaders and our own perspective on it through the principles that we developed as a result of the research with the broader community. And um, so thank you for helping us to do that. You're welcome. You're welcome. Okay, and Linda. Uh, there are things that have happened uh, as a result of the book that I'm very, we're both very excited about. We we also ask public policy questions in the book. One of them, uh, and the book, the interviews were ha- happening right after the presidential election in uh, 2016. One of the questions was, how, what's the nonprofit sector's role in bridging the urban-rural divide? In this country, because a lot of the uh, election results comes, you know, it can be uh, seen as urban versus rural. Uh, And uh, we're actually having a conversation with uh, uh, potential funders and philanthropists and also all 47 of our interviewees who, and many of them answered that question, um, uh, about uh, how we might be able to uh, create a, a better model for uh, economic equity in this country uh, because it does mm-hmm. really 
from what we have seen from the effects of globalization and you know great technology is that if uh, the prosperity uh, resulting from globalization and and technology were more broadly shared uh, the urban rural divide would not would would be bridged mm-hmm. point and I never thought of it never mm-hmm. thought of it and, and thank you for sharing that you're welcome okay so I'd like to thank our listening audience for listening to today's episode of Nonprofit Utopia. Be sure to join us next week when our guest will be Lauren Wesley. She is the Director of Development for the North London Employment Network. And Lauren is going to share with us strategies for developing a case for support, giving Tuesday, and also share some case studies of successful Giving Tuesday campaigns. So, I am looking for a very, very um, lively discussion next week. So until that time, I want everyone to take care, and I thank you again, Vivian and Linda, and I will be getting off the phone to, to buy the book. All right. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye.